Welcome to Becoming Barnum, the journey to fame and fortune, a podcast presented by the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and based on their award-winning blog series. Support for this project is presented to the Barnum Museum from the City of Bridgeport American Rescue Plan Act Funds, Peoples United, a division of M&T Bank, and the Connecticut Humanities and National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. The Barnum Museum has a special treasure in its collection, a 750-page copybook of letters written by Phineas Taylor Barnum when he was traveling in Europe in the 1840s, introducing his young protege, General Tom Thumb, to high society and royalty, as well as millions of ordinary people. Barnum's lively letters to friends, family members, and business associates reveal him more completely as a person, at times struggling mightily to make the three-year tour a success, all the while directing the management of his American museum from afar. They also offer insights into Barnum as a husband, father, and nephew, and as a mentor to the child actor-entertainer whose popularity resulted in their meteoric rise to fame and fortune. In his mid-30s at the time, Barnum proved himself a tireless go-getter, calculating risk-taker, and astute entrepreneur decades before his name was attracting crowds to the greatest show on earth. These letters offer a window into the hard-scrabble era of show business, revealing how Barnum went about acquiring, hiring, and commissioning attractions, and promoting his museum and the general Tom Thumb tour in Europe. Join us as we travel back in time to learn through Barnum's own words about the real person behind the legendary P.T. Barnum. A new play for the general. P.T. Barnum's famous protege, Charles Stratton, known to the world as General Tom Thumb, was quite a young child when he was first introduced to European audiences in the mid-1840s. Though he was five, six, and seven over the three-year tour, Barnum billed him as five or six years older to make his diminutive stature seem all the more impressive. What was actually more remarkable given Stratton's true age at the time was his exceptional talent, coupled with an outgoing, ebullient personality that captivated all whom he met. Healthy measures of native talent, charm, fun-seeking, and mischievousness made him well-suited to becoming a popular entertainer, roles he seems to have relished. If we could swoop back in time to see the general on stage, I'm sure we'd find the manner and staging of his performances quite unfamiliar. That said, we'd be witnessing the beginnings of something that is familiar to us today, the creation of a celebrity. That was Barnum's genius from the start, engineering not only the performances, but the whole rollout, everything before and beyond that would cultivate and excite audiences and ensure widespread buzz. Apropos to buzz, 
Barnum's letters are as close as we can get to being a fly on the wall in 1845, observing how he managed the tour, and, as we discover in one letter, the creation of new stage material for General Tom Thumb, who he clearly admired. Stratton performed what we would call a variety act that included singing, comedic recitations, portrayals of famous people and characters in costume, and academic poses, wearing a white leotard type of garment to mimic classical statuary. There was also a play based on a traditional folk story published in France in 1697 and in England in 1729, akin to the Hansel and Gretel fairy tale. In France, it was called Le Petit Poussé, and in England, Hop o' My Thumb. While touring in France, Stratton and his entourage performed a version of Petit Poussé, as Barnum called it, Pousse being the French word for thumb. Tom Thumb was known as Tom Pousse in France. A letter to a Mr. Smith, Albert R. Smith, written in Toulouse, France on September 19, 1845, is quite interesting for the detail Barnum shares about the play, which apparently was in need of editing and new content. Barnum tells Smith, We have concluded to have you go ahead and revamp Petit Pousset, making such additions and alterations as your judgment shall dictate. Barnum seems to have trusted that Smith knew how to please audiences, for he offers direction, but leaves the decisions up to him. Quoting Smith's proposal, he wrote, you propose to entirely reconstruct the piece with good burlesque dialogue all in verse and jokes for 50 pounds, or to do it in simple prose for 25 pounds. Now, my dear fellow, I don't know which will take the best, the poetry or the prose, and therefore leave it entirely to you. We want the best thing that can be turned out, and if it will be better in poetry than prose, we prefer to have the former and pay you 50 pounds. Much the way Barnum described the art of puffing to C.D. Stewart in another letter, he advised Smith, We want something wonderfully steep, particularly stunning, something overrunning with jokes and cream that will take in any country, and if you stick in several comic duets or trios, the general and his little coachy and footman can sing them. I asked the general what I should request you to add to the piece. He says he wants you to add the Old English catch, Three Blind Mice, etc., for him, his coachy, and footman to sing. It's interesting to learn that the young coachman and footman who drove Tom Thumb's miniature equipage were also ad hoc stage performers. Barnum noted to Smith, The little coachy and footman can always be depended on to fill any little characters which you may choose to introduce them in. Reviewing the problems with the current Le Petit Poussé, Barnum expressed his opinion that One great fault of Petit Pousset is, as you say, the five acts. Two or three are sufficient. Another fault is there is not half enough for the general to do. It is no matter how much you put in for him to do or say or sing, he can do anything that any actor can do. He's got a first-rate idea of the comic, and he can come the pantomime to any extent and talk as much as you please. If you choose to introduce his statues, do so, though perhaps you can introduce other things which will be better. He can strut the dandy, or meditate as Napoleon, and as many other dodges as you desire. Barnum was much more enthusiastic about the music to Le Petit Pousset, which he noted was good, very good, and perhaps it will be better to preserve it in the new piece. If you think so, I will send it to you. 
Inventing clever ways in which to introduce the general on stage was key to engaging the audience at the outset. Ideally, their anticipation would be followed by surprise and delight as people realized how truly small the boy was. Barnum tells Smith, You can introduce him in a muff or small work basket or beer pot or as many other things as you please. Barnum himself had introduced the general on stage, for he relates how he'd done it and suggests an idea, if Smith felt it worthwhile. I have sometimes for fun put him in my bosom and buttoned my overcoat so that he could not be seen. It merely gives me the appearance of a tolerable fat alderman. Any other man could do the same, and the man might be conversing with a pretended ventriloquist who would introduce a voice into this man's stomach, the general's piping voice answering when and what required. We learn from another of Barnum's letters that, in August, a Monsieur Roux in Paris had written a play for General Tom Thumb titled Le Gion. In all probability, it too was based on a folktale. But for some reason, it didn't sit well with young Charles or his instructor, and he refused to learn the lines, something Barnum mentioned on a couple of occasions. Barnum, who disliked Roux, probably didn't care to push the issue and commented that Rue had written him in September and complained bitterly that his play had not been performed. So it is not so surprising that Barnum informed Smith, I send you a French piece written for the general called Le Gion. He has never learned it, nor never will. But perhaps it may furnish you some hints for the new piece, and perhaps it may not. And perhaps in the letters ahead, we will hear of the success of the new Petit Pousset, as well as whether Le Gion was ever performed, if only to get Barnum off the hook for the 500 francs he would owe Rue if Tom Thumb failed to perform the play. Such was the business of theater. Arranging All the Affairs Now, let's connect the dots among various letters to get a better idea of what Barnum actually had to do to arrange for the general's performances in each town, and the range of people he dealt with, from mayors and lumpists to bill printers, bill posters, porters, piano and prop renters, and newspapermen. He also had to bargain with hotel proprietors to orchestrate accommodations for the entourage, including the miniature ponies. And then the hotelier, mayor, newsman, and even the chief of police had to be given their soft soap, free admission to a performance. Attending to the practicalities was no easy feat, especially in the limited time frame Barnum allowed himself before moving on to the next town. Time was money, after all, and he saw no profit in having to spend two days making arrangements in a town where the general would only be performing one day. Two or three days was the usual. Barnum's lack of familiarity with the customs, attitudes, and language was sometimes a source of frustration, and his letters are liberally spiced with expressions of his irritation. He must have felt it worthwhile that he himself attend to the preparation details and negotiations, for we know from an earlier letter that there was a financial advantage, at least occasionally, in having people perceive him as merely an advance man or agent for Tom Thumb. To start off, in each town Barnum first needed to meet with the mayor, or meet the mayor along with the local theater manager. Although this may not have been true in every town, 
It seems as if mayors held the authority to approve or prohibit particular theatrical performances and the number of days they were permitted to perform. In addition, although there was an established rate for the poor tax, droit du pauvre, or poor man's right, levied on luxuries like theater acts, the mayor could decide how much to demand and whether he was willing to negotiate. At times, a maddened Barnum felt the decision was quite unreasonable, leaving him little chance for profit, as we have heard before. Then there was the theater manager's cut to be factored in. In another example of Barnum's Yankee-style remedies, he provides instruction to Mr. Pinta, the interpreter he had hired for the tour, who would be with the entourage while Barnum had gone on to other towns. He advised, The manager or director of the theater at Béziers will come and take his cinquième, fifth, of our receipts. Now this fifth we must pay him, but I wish you to understand the law. The law is that one must pay him one-fifth after deducting the droit de pauvre. Now, the droit de pauvre for natural curiosities is one-quarter recette brute, gross receipts. So we must deduct one-quarter before paying the manager his cinquième. The hospice here demands 20 francs per day, and the manager claims his cinquième after deducting 20 francs. But you will discover he has no right to claims for it is none of his business whether we pay 20 francs or nothing at all. The droit de pauvre remains the same. One quarter and that quarter must be deducted before you pay the manager. There's no mistake about this, and if the manager does not agree to your deducting the quarter, which is the legal rights of the poor, you must go before the mayor and appeal to the law book to decide the fact. Don't let the damned rascal swindle us, although it's the custom of the country. Interestingly, Barnum used the higher one-fourth tax rate for the exhibition of natural curiosities to his advantage, because it would, in theory, benefit him to substantially lower the amount on which the theater manager's one-fifth would be calculated, even though Barnum was only going to be paying 20 francs per day. However, you may recall that when he was in Bordeaux, he claimed the right to a lower rate, the theatrical rate, arguing to the mayor that General Tom Thumb was a legitimate actor, and he was not therefore to be considered the same as a natural curiosity, which by law gives the hospital the right to demand a quarter of the receipts. So, another touch of Yankee. No doubt the time and energy required for negotiations triggered much of the aggravation Barnum experienced. Mayors seemed to be a trial for him in most every town. Thus, we can readily imagine Barnum's glee when he wrote from Montpellier on September 24th, I dashed off this morning by railroad to Set, where I am happy to say I succeeded in arranging all the affairs and got back here in time to attend the rehearsal of Petit Pousset tonight. Likely depending on a town's size, there might only be one venue, or there could be several options such as various halls and exhibition rooms in addition to a theater. Barnum's letters reveal he was sometimes forced to find an alternate location when his first choice did not pan out. That really came to a head in Béziers, when Barnum inadvertently discovered that the Grand Hall had been double-booked by the mayor himself. He voiced his indignation to Mr. Stratton, General Tom Thumb's father, in a letter on September 22nd. I had arranged to have the Salle de la Marie and had hired chairs, lampistes, etc., and written out notices for the papers, etc., when lo and behold I went to the printer to get the bills printed, 
and was there informed that a concert would take place in the Salle Marie that same night. I went to the mayor, and sure enough, the old fool had promised the hall for a concert and forgot it, and afterwards promised it to me. I was obliged to do everything over again, so I hired another hall, told the lampiste and the owner of the chairs that I could not use their lamps and chairs, and have finally finished all arrangements for another salle and left particulars at Hotel Poste. Among the tasks at hand were getting both large and small bills, handbills, printed, the large ones posted and the smaller distributed by hand. A place or places had to be found where samples of the general's clothing could be exposed, displayed, to drum up interest. Likewise, lithographs, illustrative prints, needed to be displayed or circulated. Hiring a lampiste was essential, certainly for evening performances, because this was the person responsible for lighting and extinguishing the gas lights, for which one paid by the hour. Barnum tried to limit that expense to four hours. Then there were chairs to be rented and set up, with a rope to separate the premier's best seats from those for lower-priced ticket holders, who might only be fortunate enough to sit on a bench. For example, Barnum tells Stratton that in Bézier, I suppose there are only chairs enough for premiers. If so, the seconds must stand up, or else you must hire some plank to place on the chairs. In Montpellier, rental chairs were more abundant. Unlike venues that required a do-it-yourself setup, here Barnum was hiring a porter to take care of cleaning and arranging the hall, as well as getting chairs for five days, all for a fixed price. Luckily, in this instance, a piano was already available and at no additional charge. Again to Stratton, he notes, I talked to the porter first about 200 chairs, but when he came to stick to such a big price, I made him agree to furnish all the chairs necessary, and so he has written it on the paper enclosed. He thinks we shall not need even the 200, and I am afraid of it, but he is to furnish all that you do need. There are all kinds of details and mini-episodes like this that help us envision Barnum scrambling each day to make things work, all the while traveling overnight by diligence, stagecoach, to stay ahead of the general's entourage. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune. This podcast was produced by the Barnum Museum. All episodes are based on the blog series Barnum's Letters from Abroad by Adrian St. Pierre, curator of the Barnum Museum. Editing and sound design are by Rui Pino, and narration by William Saris. Kathleen Marr is our executive director, and John Swing is our chief operations officer. Please visit our website at www.barnum-museum.org to learn more about the museum. Don't forget to connect with us on social media and visit the Barnum Museum's YouTube channel for behind-the-scenes presentations of our fascinating collections and more stories about the legendary showman. Please tune in next time as we continue our adventures in Europe with P.T. Barnum.